48K News. It's 11 o'clock. I'm Sean Kennedy. Tonight's headlines. The government looks at mandatory COVID tests for more people. Health officials warn Hong Kong's latest infection numbers are worrying. And coronavirus-stricken Donald Trump refuses to take part in a virtual TV debate with Joe Biden. The authorities are studying whether they can make COVID tests mandatory for more people to give officials a better picture of the outbreak and facilitate more effective infection control policies. Cecil Wong reports. Health Secretary Sophia Chan did not specify whether the government wants to test everyone or specific targeted groups if it does indeed make it a legal requirement for people to submit to coronavirus tests. She only told reporters that for officials to have a clearer picture of the COVID situation, compulsory testing is necessary, and they're now looking at the legal feasibility of such a move. The government has previously launched a number of voluntary testing schemes with mixed results. 1.8 million people took part in a voluntary citywide test last month, which uncovered more than 40 new infections. Meanwhile, health authorities have confirmed 18 new coronavirus cases today, the highest single-day figure since September the 20th. 11 are linked to a care home for disabled people. One is linked to a cluster involving a bar in Chimsa Choi. Health chief Sophia Chan says the numbers are worrying. We don't think the situation is looking good because of the uh, number of uh, increased uh, confirmed cases, uh, not only local cases, but also uh, unlinked cases as well. So it, it shows that there is still uh, silent uh, commun- community transmission chains. Uh, therefore, uh, everybody would have to stay uh, very uh, vigilant. The judiciary says complaints about a magistrate who angered pro-Beijing figures with his remarks about police officers have been found to be unsubstantiated. Jimmy Choi reports. Complaints were recently filed by members of the public in relation to eight cases handled by former Eastern Court magistrates Danny Ho. He'd been targeted by pro-Beijing figures and media after he acquitted some anti-government protesters and made scuffing remarks about the evidence given by some police officers. But the chief magistrate has concluded that complaints regarding six of the cases were unsubstantiated and says those in relation to the other two cases will be followed up when the legal proceedings are completed. In a report released online, the chief magistrate notes that the Department of Justice had an appeal against Mr. Ho's decisions on the grounds that they were biased or wrong in law. The chief magistrate said it would be inappropriate for him to interfere in the rulings, with the report saying Chief Justice Jeffrey Ma agreed with him. The judiciary also says it will enhance transparency by publishing summaries of decisions made by magistrates or by district court judges that could attract greater public attention. But DAB lawmaker Holden Chow says the move won't be enough to address public concerns about the impartiality of judicial officers. We are asking the judiciary to respond and also to take active steps to address these sort of concerns. Raising the transparency of dealing with the complaints against judges, of course this sort of attitude is a must. But whether it is able to address people's concern, I have doubt. Legal sector lawmaker Dennis Kwok from the Civic Party says the pro-Beijing camp should study the newly published judgments to make informed critiques instead of sweeping attacks on judges. I would urge the public to, before you criticise any judicial decision, actually have a look at the judgment. If you wish to criticise it, do so in a way that is objective and analytical. And do not pursue personal vendetta or use a political lens to heavily criticise certain judges or magistrates. And that is not conducive to the administration of justice in Hong Kong. 
Your, the two remaining U.S. presidential debates have been thrown into confusion. Minutes after the organisers said next Thursday's event would be held virtually, President Trump announced that he would not be taking part. The BBC's Nada Torfik has details. After President Trump was infected with the coronavirus, one of the many questions that arose was whether or not there would be any more debates. The commission's decision to hold the second virtually would have ensured safety measures were in place as Mr. Trump continues to recover from the virus. The plan called for both presidential nominees to appear remotely, with the moderator and undecided voters in Miami, where the original event was to be held. Joe Biden's campaign said he was looking forward to speaking directly to the American people, but the president has refused to take take part. He said he was never consulted and would not waste his time on a virtual debate. The Trump campaign said it would hold a rally instead. You're tuned to RTHK. The time is coming up to five minutes past 11. Relatives of the 12 Hong Kongers held in Shenzhen for allegedly entering mainland waters illegally have demanded to know whether the government flying service tracked the group before they were picked up by the Guangdong Coast Guard. Activists say they have new information suggesting Hong Kong police asked for aircraft to be sent out on the day the 12 were captured. Joanna Wong reports. Family members of the 12 were met by police dishing out fines over the four-person gathering limit as they staged a protest outside the headquarters of the government flying surface on Lantau. They say they don't believe Chief Executive Kerry Lam's claim that the police had nothing to do with the detentions on August the 23rd. And they think the government was aware of the group's plan to leave for Taiwan by speedboat. Following reports that a government flying surface aircraft circled over the group's route on the day, pro-democracy activists now say they've obtained documents which appear to show the police were involved in the mission. Joshua Wong joined the family's protest. From the source and the whistleblower that provide information to us, all we are aware is on the 23rd of August, during that midnight, how police urged the flying surface to send out the aircraft to conduct the monitoring action, which related to the 12 protester. And this evidence already proved that how Hong Kong police force and the flying surface might be the one that already aware this incident. And they just wish to set a trap and let all those 12 protesters not arrested by Hong Kong police, but just locked up in mainland China. The families are demanding to see mission records for the day of the arrests. The government flying service has already said it won't be making the flight data public in keeping with usual practice. Pan-Democrats say any move to allow Hong Kong people living on the mainland to vote in LegCo polls would be a blatant attempt to rig the elections. Singtel Daily reports that the government will soon announce plans to set up polling stations in the Greater Bay Area for Hong Kongers there. Damon Pang reports. Pro-Beijing heavyweights have been calling for such a move for months, but the pan-Democrats say they will do everything they can to stop it from becoming reality. They say it's unfair to let half a million Hong Kong permanent residents who now live in the Greater Bay Area vote in the SAR selections. How are the Democrats going to canvass for votes there, they wonder, when much of what is discussed in Hong Kong is banned on the mainland? They are also concerned about vote-rigging and other election malpractice. Democrat Lam Chak-Ting says Hong Kong officials will have no power to deal with any problems that occur at polling stations on the mainland. As a former ICC investigator, I don't think the commission have any legal power to carry out any meaningful investigation on mainland China. I'm very worried that 
devolving activities or the other corruption activities will happen, and ultimately there will be no consequences for those wrongdoers. Council front lawmaker Claudia Mo says allowing people who don't ordinarily reside in Hong Kong to vote in the territory's polls would change the rules of the game in the probation camp's favour. They are now practically announcing that they will try their best to legitimise something that's perfectly illegal under our existing election laws. That a voter would need to be normally residing in Hong Kong. To legitimise it, they would need to change the laws. And how do they do it? Oh, they've got the numbers at the legislature. However, pro-Beijing lawmaker Priscilla Leung of the Business and Professionals Alliance says it would be a good move for the government to make. She says prisoners can now vote using their last residential address in Hong Kong, and the same should apply to people living in the Greater Bay Area. Ms. Leung says theoretically, such rights should also be given to Hong Kongers living elsewhere, including Taiwan, but the government should take things one step at a time. Theoretically, it is under one country, okay? So under one country, two system, they should be treated the same. However, administratively, even in mainland China, we cannot open to all provinces for the time being. We would target Greater Bay Area first. Everything must be done incrementally. Ms. Lang says she has ideas on how to deal with the problem of extraterritorial jurisdiction, and she'll make them public when it's time to start discussing the finer details. The historic State Theatre building in North Point has been sold at auction for more than $4.7 billion. New World Development won approval for the sale after taking majority ownership of the building. Candace Wong reports. New World had already acquired 98% of the building's ownership. Now it owns it outright after bidding a record high amount at the compulsory auction. The sale price is more than 50% higher than the $3 billion the site was valued at in 2018. The State Theatre building at the junction of Kings Road and Tin Chong Street is a commercial and residential project that was completed in 1959. Part of it was given Grade 1 historical historic building status three years ago. Heritage assessors noted that as one of the oldest theatre buildings in Hong Kong, it was a major venue for concerts and live entertainment before the curtain came down for good there in 1997. New World has pledged to preserve the building's heritage value and keep its unique parabola-like concrete arches above the roof. It says it has already hired architects to draw up a preservation plan. Charles Chen, the managing director for Savills Valuation and Professional Services Limited, who was in charge of the auction, says construction costs are likely to go up if the redevelopment involves heritage preservation. But he says he thinks New World's bid was in line with the market price for the site, which provides a rare opportunity for large-scale redevelopment in the urban area. Pro-democracy district councillors say talks today with the government over staff walkouts, withheld pay and other concerns proved to be fruitless. They say they couldn't get any answers out of Home Affairs Secretary Kasper Tsoi. Francis Sitt reports.
Pro-democracy district councillors had hoped to confront Mr. Choi head-on about the government's refusal to cooperate with them since the camp's landslide victory in last year's elections. Despite dominating 17 out of the 18 district councils, some councillors aren't being reimbursed for expenses after the offices were used for events like the pandemic's electoral election primaries. Officials have also walked out of meetings, saying members have been discussing items beyond their remit. Southern District Councillor Paul Zimmerman said not only are matters relating to protest and the police band, but even some livelihood issues seem to be off limits. There is a motion going around for the four district councils of the Hong Kong Islands to discuss creating a Hong Kong Island coastal trail where you can walk. When one shy brought that up, the district council said, oh, you can't discuss that. That goes beyond one shy. So the chair lady had then to discuss with the district officers, say like, it's going to be discussed in every district of the Hong Kong Island. And finally, they agreed to discuss it. There is a complete obstruction of the work of the district councils at the moment that we need to resolve. The councillors who wanted the Home Affairs Chief to provide some clarity on what can and what can't be discussed were left disappointed. They said he either failed to address the concerns they brought up or responded with non-answers. The councillor's convener, Chung Kam Lun, says the secretary couldn't even promise to ask officials to meet district council heads regularly. The government didn't make any concrete point to improve the relationship with the DCs. So I think it will be more difficult in the future to work with the government. DC members are elected by one person, one vote last year. Uh, we represent the view of general public of the Hong Kong society. So the government's attitude towards DC is not healthy because they do not face the problem or the demand of Hong Kong people. The councillor says whether they will meet officials in future depends on the government's sincerity in improving ties with the district councils. The Nobel Literature Prize has been awarded to the US poet Louise Glock. The Swedish Academy praised the austere beauty of her poetic voice and her ability to make individual existence universal. The BBC's Vincent Dowd reports. Louise Glick's first book of verse came out in 1968. Since then, she's become one of America's most respected poets. She was U.S. Poet Laureate in 2003. In her 12 books, she's explored life with emotional intensity and to do so has often used references to myth and to the power of nature. Announcing the award, the Nobel Academy said Louise Glick's work was characterised by a striving for clarity. Louise Glick becomes only the 16th woman to take the prize. And a reminder of our top stories tonight. The government looks at mandatory COVID tests for more people. Health officials warn that Hong Kong's latest infection numbers are worrying. And coronavirus-stricken Donald Trump refuses to take part in a virtual TV debate with Joe Biden. The news from RTHK. RTHK Radio 3 it's time now to look at stories covered in this evening's Newswrap programme. The State Theatre building in North Point has been sold at auction for more than $4.7 billion. New World Development won approval for the sale after taking majority ownership of the building. Paul Chan, the co-founder of Walk in Hong Kong, a cultural organisation that's campaigned to preserve the Grade 1 historic building, told Anna-Marie Evans that this is only the start of the mission to preserve the site. I think it's a celebrated move and it's a, quite a massive financial numbers involved. And also they, um, they commissioned the, uh, probably the best 
conservation architecture team in order to give it so it's, it's not just to keep the hardware but we want to keep the conservation to an uh, international standard so I think it's a welcome move yeah, so what, do you know what's going to be involved in, you know, the conservation side, you know, in terms of maintaining the integrity, perhaps, of uh, what the state theatre used to be? It, it used to be the largest theatre space in, in the whole island side. And uh, I think they have some subtext that it's going to be related to culture. It's going to be a, like a cultural performance venue. So it's somehow still linked, closely linked. To the, to the original purpose. But I think it's keeping the building itself is only the beginning, and there's a, quite a lot of work to be done. So first, is, um, we need to further study the heritage value and also to um, dig, dig deeper into the past of the buildings and any uh, interesting story that's associated with it. And secondly, we need to build a stronger community connection between the building and the neighboring community and also to cultivate a sense of like emotional attachment so that people know there's not only to keep the building but the building and deserve to be proud to be kept and also uh, tell the stories of the community and also deserve a chance to be a, like, a, like a highlight of the city. Yeah, why is it such an important landmark to you? And uh, also, if you can also answer, the fact is that Walk in Hong Kong, you and Heide Kickerboy have been very involved in the president or highlighting the heritage aspects of this state theatre. Are you now going to be involved in trying to preserve it? We run a cultural program and walk into it around the city. Uh, with the idea to bring out the most authentic and interesting side of the city. But what's really frustrating in Hong Kong is the old building can hardly survive because of the uh, property market and also like the owner of the building tends to knock it down for uh, for higher higher returns. And therefore, yeah, we we lose a lot of these hidden uh, urban gems, and it makes our city uh, less attractive. And also, uh, we lose a lot of these important cultural assets. And that's why we are so keen to, um, to protect the, um, the theatre, to tell people that they are actually our, our cultural asset. It's very, it's uh, our treasure and therefore we have to keep it. So we, um, in the past uh, four or five years, we have been working very hard to really understand the building and to find a lot of um, people who may have stories, including even we find the um, we find the daughter-in-law of the founder Harry O'Dell, the founder, the founder of the of State Theatre, and we and we get a lot of these uh, stories, uh, a lot of collectibles, and uh, have a very robust understanding of the of the building. And therefore, we we definitely we are willing to share these um, information and knowledge, so that the conservation, so that these important uh, heritage value of the building can be fully integrated and shine in the eventual uh, conservation project. Friends of the Earth is urging Chief Executive Carrie Lam to make up for lost time by announcing environmental proposals in her policy address next week. The Green Group wants to see the government offer long-term plans for tackling the climate crisis and the implementation of a waste charging scheme. It also says the administration should promote green finance as a way to kickstart the economy. The group's chief executive, Geoffrey Hung, explained to Richard Pine why their proposals should be considered priority 
given the events of the last year. In the last year, the government has launched public consultation on the long-term decarbonisation strategy, but we are now still waiting for the results. Actually, climate change is an imminent threat because in the past July, we have a, a record-breaking hot days, consecutive days, and also we are facing more extreme weather. For example, you still remember in 2017-18, the, the typhoon Hekto and Mankat, and then they have a serious destroys in Hong Kong and in all, all other Asian countries. So probably Hong Kong need to do more in the carbon reduction, in the climate change mitigation and adaptations. In Hong Kong, if you look into the breakdown, we are two major sources of the carbon emissions. Close to 70% is from the electricity generation. And the second largest sector is from transportation. So probably the government must need to develop more renewable energy in Hong Kong. Or we can explore the opportunity to collaborate with mainland China because the government always says that Hong Kong do not have enough land to build a renewable energy plant or whatsoever. So probably we must make use of the abundance natural resources in the Perifer Delta region so that to, to increase the energy generation in Hong Kong. And for the transportation sector, Hong Kong is very slow in clean energy vehicles. For example, if, if you look into the China, electric public transportation is everywhere. But in Hong Kong, we are still just have some piecemeal measures to support the EV development, but they are confined to, to only the private vehicles. So probably Hong Kong need to spend more resources and more policy support and financial support to the development of the electric public transportation. That's the way to go. Yeah. When we talk about long-term decarbonisation goals, how long term are we thinking? Because President Xi Jinping is saying yeah, yeah. China should be carbon neutral yeah. by 2060. Yeah, actually that's encouraging because the China-US is the biggest emitting countries. So probably they target to 2060 to have a carbon neutrality. Although it still cannot meet the Paris Agreement of 2050 neutrality. But for Hong Kong, we must need to be more ambitious because according to the IPCC, we actually we have less than 10 years to mitigate the climate change because they have set a target according to the Paris Agreement to limit the temperature uh, well below 1.5 degrees C. They have to cut at least 45% of the carbon emissions by 2030 and to reach net zero by 2050. But as you know, in Hong Kong, we only have set a target with 26 to 36 percent by 2030. That's well below the Paris Agreement target. Hong Kong is a well-developed city, so probably we need to take more responsibility to, to reduce our own carbon emissions. We're going through a sort of economic recession because of COVID. Yeah. How can green finance help bring Hong Kong out of this? Yeah, yeah, green finance definitely will play a key role in, in the green transition to a low-carbon economy for Hong Kong. Because many people say that environmental protection needs to spend money. But in fact, it's not true because we can couple with the financial policy and then the, the environmental policy. Actually, there's a lot of studies show that the green investment or green project can create a huge amount of job opportunity. For example, if you switch to renewable energy, if you switch to electric vehicle, we need a lot of huge human capital to support it. Uh, the scientists also emphasize that the climate change, the impact will be far more severe than the COVID-19. So we must need to have a green transition and to to strengthen to green workforce and then to get more green uh, investment or, or green finance to support because when we talk about mitigation and adaptations we need money if we do not have money how can we mitigate the climate change
The Clean Air Network says there's a lesson regarding the environment for the government to learn from the COVID-19 pandemic. The Green Group says it found that roadside pollution improved in the first half of the year but spiked from July to September. It blames the relaxation of social distancing measure for offsetting some of the declines in particulates and nitrogen dioxide that were recorded during the first six months of the year. The group's CEO, Patrick Fong, told Joanna Wong that levels of these pollutants hit five-year lows before July. We know that there are other factors as well. For example, in the regional level, in the southern mainland China, there are other activities, economic, human activity reduced. We have the aviation industry and the activity reduced. We might have also the shipping industry and activity reduced. However, when we look at roadside air pollution, the dominating factor should be the road transport, I mean the cars. Because of the COVID, the government implemented some of the social distancing policy, including the work from home policies, school closure, entertainment, food and beverage, businesses closure, etc. That would reduce the road transport activities. And because we're talking about roadside air pollution, the reduced traffic activity would lead to a natural reduction of emission, including the particular matters and the nitrogen dioxide from the car exhaust. That might explain why the emission level of these pollutants, including particular matters and nitrogen dioxide, has hit a five-year low. There was a point when Hong Kong went to the extreme with many workers working from home, not many people going out, a lot fewer private cars and buses on the road. So we're seeing an around 5% decrease for nitrogen dioxide, for example. Is this intensity what you expected when you saw that there weren't really that many vehicles on the road anymore? We see that traffic activity reduced. That would reduce the emission. Secondly, even though we have a reduced traffic activity seen in the first half of Hong Kong due to COVID and all the social distancing policy, there was only under 10% improvement on the nitrogen dioxide. It might give us some lesson. The traffic activity reduction may not be comparable to the benefit we might have if we are doing more on emission control. So that's why we are calling for cleaner buses, cleaner public transport. That would give us a more significant improvement in terms of nitrogen dioxide or particular matters. And you also looked at the air pollution figures between July and September. You noticed that there had been a spike in all the pollutants that you were looking at, um, and the numbers are pretty um, significant. We're talking about more than 100 and 60% spikes for both PM 2.5 and ozone for Mongkok. Other areas are also recorded very significant increases. So is the situation worse than pre-pandemic levels? Indeed, if you look at the nine months trend in September, we are hitting one of the highest over the last nine months. We know that there's always a seasonal factor there from July to September because we are having a different direction of the wind flow. So that's why in July, summer of Hong Kong, it usually has the best air quality of a year. However, when we compare the worsening of air pollution from July to September between this year and last year, we are seeing the easing of the social distancing policy might have a more significant factor than the seasonal factor. A power vacuum is threatening to destabilise Kyrgyzstan, which is struggling to come up with legitimate ways of initiating a power transfer following a violent uprising over a disputed parliamentary election result. 
Mob rule is spreading across the country with people storming government offices and appointing their leaders to positions of chairperson, mayor or minister. Paul Rogers, Professor of Peace Studies at Bradford University in the UK, spoke to Anna-Marie Evans. Kyrgyzstan is one of the smaller of the republics in Central Asia in terms of population. It has about 6.5 million, million people, quite a lot of them in its capital of Bishbek. Um, it's had a very checkered history over the last 25, 30 years since the end of the Soviet Union, and a lot of instability at different times. The current president, Soran Bai Djembikov, uh, uh, was prime minister before. He's been in power for three or four years, but presided over a pretty disparate country with major problems of uh, criminality, large criminal gangs, often having considerable political influence. It came to a head because of public disturbances, as you say, following disputed parliamentary elections and the failure of the president and parliament to, in any sense, provide a degree of stability to allow a transition. So it's a very worrying time, obviously, for the Kyrgyz themselves, it's a country with a very convoluted border with Tajikistan and Uzbekistan. It is in the Russian camp, so to speak, and Russia will be very concerned about this because it's simultaneously having problems with two other near neighbors, obviously Azerbaijan and Armenia together, and also Belarus. Uh, so the worries in the Kremlin will be quite considerable at present, even though this is a relatively small country, and there doesn't seem to be any immediate way forward. So worrying all round, but particularly obviously for the Kyrgyz themselves. So does Russia have any influence? It does. It's interesting that at the time of the Afghan war 20 years ago, the United States moved in very quickly to actually do a deal to operate from a Manas air base, which was very convenient for the Americans. It became quite a big center. But that was lost some years ago. And Russia, in fact, does have a base there. Uh, so it has a direct defense interest, if you like, and the Kyrgyz themselves always saw more of a movement towards Russia, say, than, than China or even the United States. The population is overwhelmingly uh, Kyrgyz, but there are about 10% of Russians who have a fair bit of influence, although and not particularly in Parliament. So for Russia itself, it is a worry that there's this instability. And as I say, at the same time, there's two other states on its periphery. Those stories were part of the Newswrap programme, which was broadcast on RTHK earlier this evening. Our hands often touch public items covered with viruses and bacteria. When we touch our eyes, nose or mouth, the pathogens can enter the body. Health is in our hands. To prevent infection, follow the seven hand cleaning steps. Rub hands for 20 seconds. Rinse thoroughly. Dry with a clean cloth or paper towel. If you can't wash your hands and they aren't visibly soiled, use an alcohol-based hand rub. What if our hands get dirty again? Clean them properly. Live across Hong Kong, this is Radio 3. January to December, we'll have moments to Welcome to Music Nostalgia with Ray Cordero. From now until 1 a.m. Richard Claydemann at the piano.
Richard Craig Claydon at the piano with Evergreen. A message from Jim Reeves. I love you because you understand Every single thing I try to do. Most of all 